0: Yen. Yen and and All right. Welcome to Yin and Young, the podcast. Yay. Yay. Episode 43. <laughs> we are here. Wow. Yeah, episode 43 with uh, our guest today is Henry B. Chen. Uh, Henry is a writer. Uh, he has written for such shows as Boomerang. Uh, he was a personal executive assistant to Catherine Bigelow on Detroit. Uh, he was my mentor for the TAF pitch competition that was happened recently last month. Uh, among other things, he also has a, a few projects in development that we we should be able to talk about yeah sure um such as tino salvage and uh three ninjas uh which i watched recently um yes nice. <laughs> the original the first one yeah i haven't seen the have you seen all of them i'm assuming yeah uh
1: once upon a time but yeah for yeah, yeah. our purposes we i just rewatched the first one it's the like, first one yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's all on youtube yeah <laughs> Like, the, is entire, it? the entire movie, the entire first movie from 92 is on YouTube. Is, that, is, that for, le-
0: is it legally on YouTube, though? I mean... Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah,
1: who knows? I mean, the original rights holders, I think they're aware, and they haven't done anything about it, so...
2: Right, no cease and desist, I guess, yeah, yeah. Well, at this point, there, I don't think there are a lot of people clamoring, and, or they're not making money off of it, right? Like, either way, DVD sales are probably not going to be very hot for that movie, and... I don't think people are buying it on iTunes how dare you Dan
0: it's a classic it's a classic <laughs>
2: hey it meant a lot it meant a
1: lot to uh, a lot of our childhoods it, was suppo- it made me want to be a ninja that's okay. sure. really yeah yeah. yeah. it, it was did nin- it honestly did
0: it's very interesting weird for not it's a weird coincidence but Boomerang the first film came out in 92 and so did um, Three Ninjas yeah that's right which are two things that you're currently working on which is I thought was an interesting coincidence yeah yeah,
1: yeah the 90s man the 90s the 90s, was, yeah, the 90s yeah. were wild
0: <laughs> um, so yeah like so start off with uh, basically for our podcast it's fairly free form I do have uh, notes and stuff we can go off of but generally I like to keep it fairly free and open um, for I guess first time guests we generally like to go through maybe your bio kind of like your backstory how you got into to um riding and all that does does that sound good to you or? absolutely yeah sure sure dan any questions you want to start
2: with or yeah uh are you, are you local from los angeles or did you move here
1: yeah um i was born born in southern california pretty much been in socal my whole life but i grew up in a city called mm-hmm. walnut uh which is oh. next to Roland heights and diamond bar so about right. 30 miles east of downtown la and uh i was there from like the age of five all the way up until I went off to college. And then I just learned that James went to UC San Diego. Mm. Uh, I went there for my first year. Uh, oh, I
0: think we, oh, yeah. but yeah, Did yeah. we talk about it? I think you mentioned it briefly, but, yeah. Because yeah, you
1: eventually
2: transferred, right?
0: Or,
1: I eventually transferred to USC. How dare uh, you? And it was, it was actually
2: because of Fight J. On. J. That's actually better school. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Dan, did you go to USC?
2: I went to both. I went to UC San Diego for undergrad and USC for grad.
1: Oh, there you go. There you go. You have, uh, that's, that's my life right there. So (laughs) it was actually Jean-Pierre Gorin who was like this crazy French professor. And if if you went to USC for undergrad, you had this guy named Drew Casper. Well, JP Gorin was the crazy French version of a Drew Casper. Hmm. Uh, I remember I was there when the Dark Knight just came out and he just would not stop shitting on. Christopher Nolan and The Dark Knight. He like hated Nolan so much.
0: Goran hated Goran hated, yeah, okay. hated 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 yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Nolan.
1: But as like a young, you know, 18-year-old kid, I was obsessed with this guy. Uh not Nolan, not even talking about Nolan. I'm talking about this crazy French professor. He would
0: <laughs>
1: he would threaten kids in class. Uh he would say like, you know, meet me outside of out of Wolf Hall or whatever it was called. Yeah. And uh he would be like, you know, meet me there and I'm going to kick your ass. And wow, uh, I yeah. I was, like, obsessed with that energy. So <laughs> I spent, like, my first two quarters of UC San Diego just stalking him and going to all his office hours. Oh, wow. And uh, we really developed a relationship. And I told him, you know, and this is actually when I was at a crossroads because at uh-huh. San Diego, I was studying human bio and I was on this pre-med track. Mm. But I was also doing visual arts media because in high school, I was, like, known as the film guy. So, so you were in sixth college. No, I was in ERC.
0: Oh interesting. Okay. Wow. All, all those yeah, all yeah. those writing classes. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah, Uh but it was Jean-Pierre Gorin that told me, you know, if you really want to do film, you can't stay in San Diego. Mm. You gotta transfer to USC, go to NYU, oh. or go study in Paris, France. And he was like, I really recommend you do go to France.
0: says the Frenchman. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's when I decided, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot my shot, I'm gonna apply to USC. And if I get it, I'm gonna go. And if not, I will stay in San Diego and become a doctor. And that was essentially the deal I made with my parents. Wow. Because they, you know, I come from a long line of doctors. Oh, okay. Uh, every every one on my mom's side of the family, they're all doctors. So. Okay. Wow. My parents were both shocked uh, to hear that I wanted to actually pursue film, even though my my own father kind of works in entertainment. Um, yeah, he's yeah. also like he a movie the, producer.
0: He did the Mozart documentary. Yeah. He did. He yeah, did. Yeah. yeah. Benjamin, uh, yeah.
1: But yeah, my even my dad, he was he kind of warned me against going into entertainment. Mm. He said like you know Henry, I've raised you, you know these eighteen years. I kind of know what your personality is all about. Uh, it's gonna be really hard, and you might not be able to compete with Jewish people. Like he straight up said that. Um, but you know, a deal was a deal. I got into USC after a year at San Diego. I went, and I really never looked back.
0: Wow. Um, did you, did you like the climate at USC versus San Diego or, cause you were, st- now I guess you switched your major to film or like film production or
2: was it strictly yes. so I was
1: film critical studies. So that was more the theory, history and practice of film. Okay. Kind of like what JP. it would be like to study at, you know, UCLA or UC San Diego. Ah, okay. Uh, and it's really interesting that you asked that question because if you know anything about walnut or diamond bar, it's actually predominantly Asian. Yeah. So I didn't experience a culture shock of being like an only Asian until I went to USC film school. Mm. USC as a campus, there are a bunch of Asians for sure. But sure. in the film school, in the film program, there were maybe you know, fewer than 10. Yeah, and that's a shame. No. It was those Asians that I would approach and they wanted nothing to do with me because they felt like I was too Bobby. What? Or like they were the ones that basically grew up their entire lives shedding their shedding their Asianness, And oh, now okay, like pursuing okay. film so they would see someone like me and I feel like this is getting really intellectual But I feel like I would represent Almost something that they were trying to get away from and in that sense They didn't want anything to do with me, but of course, you know, it took some time, but I broke down those those barriers and They ended up becoming my friends. So that was people like Dan <laughs> Chen people like Philip Shum uh, and then a few Philip Shum shot uh Dan's short film, Ella.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: and uh, and a few others as well. But um, so yeah, all all of that's to say, I experienced my culture shock when I went to USC, just seeing all these white people, not very many Asians, and the Asians that I did meet, didn't really want anything to do with me. Uh, but I adapted, and overall, I think the experience uh, was really cool at USC, and mm-hmm. that's that's where I ultimately ended up meeting my my partner on some of these projects. Okay,
0: Jing, okay. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, one thing did I you, kinda want, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Dan I got a question. Saying, yeah, yeah. Um, did you did you uh, connect with uh, the, any of the non-Asian f- students? I mean, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: oh, yeah. To clarify, when he says partner to our listeners, he means like his writing partner, not his like you know romantic partner. Yeah. Yeah, working partner. <laughs> working partner. <laughs> to, to be clear, sorry, but yeah. Uh,
1: but that, but it's funny. Gosh, you guys are you guys are like mind readers. Uh, Yes, I definitely connected with the non- non-Asian people in my film school. You know, we made we made a bunch of films, mm-hmm. so of course, uh, I made a lot of friends, and I actually dated my I actually dated a white girl uh, at USC. So that was really cool, and we partnered K- on camera. a lot of different things. Um, so yeah, uh, great experience overall. But I think when I first went, it was a big shock. It was a big shock to not be surrounded by. A lot of Asians because that's that's kind of all I knew
0: which is interesting because like there is an Asian population USC I mean there's you know a lot a lot of international students are from China and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but uh in compare but I guess you're saying in contrast to contrast to UCSD or where you grew up which was like what like 70 you know like crazy percentage Asian right Yeah. yeah yeah Cause, well, uh, that yeah.
2: You know. He also majored at UCSD pre-med and that's where all right. Asians went. <laughs> if he went to like, communications or something like that, I, I don't think there would be as many Asians there. That's true. Yeah, that's true. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, one, yeah, one thing I just want to circle back was JP Goran. I, I took his. Um, I wasn't a filmmaker. I was an econ major, mm. and then so I took. Uh, my friend Byron, um, Byron Q. He's a filmmaker as well. He. He he told me like oh you should check out his class right I'm like oh he did what? bang bang yeah he did bang bang yeah oh amazing yeah, yeah yeah so he's UCSD alumni as well um and he's a big fan of JP as well so I heard that like well I was like I'm not enrolled in this class can I go to his class he's like dude just show up just like just sit in it mm-hmm. I was like wait you can do that he's like uh yeah so I, I just sat in his class and then um I didn't do the assignments I was I guess I could have maybe but uh, I just sat in his class and just listened to him talk and like. Uh, what is he talking about? He's talking about Quinn Tarantino one time and he's like saying, oh, this one student, this one student was telling me how awesome, he's he talking about like a student, how awesome Uma Thurman wear the Bruce Lee, the Bruce Lee suit. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to headbutt him like Z- like Zazan, you know, like the French uh, football, uh, soccer player. So anyways, that's just one memory I have of JP. I just like that energy, right? That's definitely, yeah, a... that's that. He's like, He's, he's I don't know how I guess it's not professional But like he's Physically threatening students But I don't think He ever acts on it But it's just that energy Of like how much passion He has for a film You know All or the story. time All, Yeah And one time We were watching like this This German film About like Teleconnect Connect power Right And something like exploded And it was The effects were kind of cheesy Whatever And some people Like the people were laughing And then JP's like Everyone shut up This is the art Just quiet Watch You know, I was just like, oh, damn. Okay. Anyways, that's my... (laughs) So, Henry.
2: Yeah. So, you went to USC and things like that. I mean, you took his his advice and you never looked back. But do you think going to USC versus like UCLA, which was also in LA, was there like an advantage over going to USC versus UCLA or even NYU, do you think? It's interesting. I mean,
1: I'll I'll handle the, the UCLA question first. Uh, actually, I'll answer both by essentially saying that the biggest thing that I got out of USC, you know, it sounds cliche by now, but it really is that network. And right. a lot of the the classmates uh, that I that I was in class with, you know, we really rose up together. And it wasn't uncommon for me even after I graduated to connect with certain people that were also in my giant lecture halls uh, that also went to USC. And, you know, the moment we would talk about, like, a Drew Casper, there would be this instant connection, just like how James and I are bonding over JB Gorn right now. <laughs> it would be me with other students talking about the classes that we would take at USC Film School. So I think, like, that, just being able to establish that instant common bond is is incredible. And I'm, that's not to say that people from NYU don't get that with other NYU students, but I just think that, you know, USC, it's in LA, so, like, the location's there, and you know, people that go there, they really do, they really are there with a specific purpose. Like they really want to work in film and TV and entertainment. So, you know, when you have that kind of energy, it's, you're, you're less likely have as much fall off. Like I, I have friends who actually wanted to do film in San Diego and I have friends who wanted to do film in certain other film schools. And the truth is a lot of them ended up choosing different careers for one reason or another. But I feel like the ones that i went to usc with they're they're still sticking with it they're still mm. staying true with uh the path that they set out
0: it's kind yeah. of like how the environment maybe helps shape you because like i remember at ucsd like that was you're if you're doing film or something artistic you're the odd man out you know kind of that feeling because ucsd was like big bio bio pre-med track you know and because there's like and there's also like scripts research that's close by mm-hmm. so like super heavy focused on academics or the um the sciences stem stem yeah yeah yeah. um which was great was great meeting um uh uh, great getting meeting the theater people at ucsd because then i felt like i found my um like oh these are my people especially the asian ones um so i kind of want to circle back uh there was a lot of stuff um One thing I, if it's cool, I kind of want to get back to maybe like your upbringing a little bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And so you grew up in Walnut, and then predominantly Asian uh, elementary and high school.
1: Um, You know, like when I was that young. Yeah. I'd say maybe fifty percent Asian.
0: Oh, interesting. Mixed with
1: some, you know, white Latino. But I, I still remember always having. Korean friends, always having (laughs) Chinese friends around. Interesting. I remember being on the playground and like learning my first Korean cuss words. You know, like that all happened when I was in elementary school and middle school. Oh. And also when I was in elementary school, uh, you know, my parents both worked and my dad traveled a lot, so no one, no one was there to pick me up from school to take me home. So. And you're
0: the oldest brother, right?
1: And I'm, I'm the older brother, so my parents enrolled me in a Chinese school. That wasn't on Saturdays. It was actually every day of the week after regular school. Oh, shoot. So I would, I think that's also what helped me connect to my own cultural heritage, mm. uh, was being around a lot of other Chinese people, yeah. but also very diverse Chinese people, meaning our Chinese school attracted students from all sorts of different districts. It was basically if the parents didn't have time to take care of their kids, they would go to this Chinese school. <laughs> okay. And so I had like the gangsters all the kids. Are, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, the yeah. gangsters from Roland Heights and like the, you know, nerds from diamond bar, like all sorts of different types of Chinese Americans. And like, you know, fobs from like, I don't know, Oxford would like even, co- would even come. Uh-huh. Uh, and we would all just hang out and play handball and tetherball on the, on the playground. Oh. So it was definitely a big part of, of my upbringing, just being around a lot of different Asians.
0: This was the uh, '90s, right? Early '90s, or or wait, how old are you? Okay, yeah, yeah this is the '90s. Yeah, like late yeah. '90s. Yeah, late '90s, early 2000s. Okay. Uh, so that's interesting because the I'm kind of curious about like high school life for you because some of a lot of your work actually is centered around young people coming up uh, from the stuff the spec stuff that I've read, uh, Tino, particularly, um, and I I'm wondering, yeah, I guess. I think as a writer do you draw from your own personal life? Um, I mean I'm assuming you do but I'd I'd like to hear like what your thoughts are like first well first before we get to that I guess how was high school life for you? Were you fairly popular or were you like were you kind of like you know did you have your own clique? Uh, I'm curious about your social life in, in high school yeah.
1: I definitely was not popular I had a lot of friends that I that I really trusted and we we did have our own little clique, but I was not one of the popular kids. Uh, whereas my younger brother, even though he's five years younger than me, he definitely was the popular kid, and he was nominated, or he he was voted his homecoming king of his class. Oh. Uh, but for me, I hung out with a lot of Cantonese people, I feel like, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was just kinda, we just kinda did our own, our own thing. Okay. Uh, And in terms of like extracurriculars, I did the Mustang update, which was like our school news. So I would film skits and segments and uh, as like a part-time job, you know, I never really waited tables or worked at a boba shop. Uh, My thing was I shot the performance videos for our band, choir, dance team, things like that. And I edited and made, I don't know, like 12 bucks an hour, which was really good (laughs) at that time. Yeah. yeah, I was very happy with that. Uh,
0: so you're like a one-man production, video production team, I guess. or yeah.
1: I had this guy. Uh, I, I would probably consider him my, the very first mentor I've ever had in my life. His name was Chad Young. White dude. Really, really great, great guy. I know he's a great husband, a great father. And he really taught me so many things in, in, in production. Like, I think mm-hmm. before him, I didn't know what the rule of thirds was. Okay. And that was literally him coming into our, our uh, broadcast class and giving us like a quick little lesson. And then I just spoke to him after class and he told me about you know his company, Cinematic Edge. And he really recruited me, took, took me under his wing and mm. showed me how to, how to shoot some of these things. And eventually I was kind of on my own, uh, left to do it.
0: Was that kind of your first, maybe introduction to the arts really? Or was there something earlier? Or like, yeah, what was kind of like your first like, oh, I kind of want to keep doing something like this? Uh,
1: I think he was a big part of it. And I mentioned that my dad worked in entertainment. So he was a cameraman in Shanghai. He worked at Shanghai TV station. Mm. Uh, and then he, em- uh, he immigrated to the United States in the mid 80s. And of course, he didn't do anything in film production. He, his first job was working at a diner flipping eggs. Mm. Uh, so both my parents came to the United States and had to start from scratch. Uh, but eventually, they saved up enough money my dad was able to buy one of those really old giant Betacam cameras mm. that maybe cost like a hundred grand. <laughs> and, uh, with that, he was able to film a lot of, you know, documentaries, commercials, and, uh, and other, other random odd pieces of content. Mm. Um, and that did really, really well for a while. So that was always around my life. Cool. Um, he stopped doing that after digital came around and everyone had better, smaller digital cameras and, all the money he he earned he invested right back into the business and he bought like all this old-school analog editing equipment Mm. that like took up an entire room and all that stuff like became worthless overnight so that kind of ruined him and he had a he had to really pivot but even so just that video production side of things was always a part of my life so Mm. I always I always saw it I was always intrigued by cameras Uh, and my dad I still think he's an amazing photographer, so I would learn bits and pieces from him. Uh, but otherwise, I think Chad Young really taught me from like a very formal perspective mm. of how to how to do things, like how to frame up a shot, you know, how to connect an XLR cable, you know, things like that. Okay. Yeah. Because he was one of those guys that bought those digital cameras and okay. used <laughs> edit, digital editing software, and uh, and pushed my dad out of business. Uh, wow no hate on him, it's just, that's just how it was.
0: That's the way, yeah. 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 Uh, it made me think about, um, yeah, and then I guess J.P. Garan was like kind of like the next big influence for you, like to go, when you went to UC, because in high school, did you feel like academic pressure to like, oh, I have to follow this, I don't know, play like, the good son path of like, let me get like a regular, let me let me follow my mom's uh, uncles or, you know, their path of getting, being a doctor. Was that kind of like the impetus of going to UC San Diego at, at first?
1: Yeah. Uh, my dream school was UCLA. Oh. I, I, and I didn't get in. UC San Diego was Dude, the best. Dude, fuck UCLA. <laughs> UC San Diego I was... didn't get in either. That was I the best school I got either. into.
0: Oh, uh, you got rejected too, Dan?
1: Of course. Yeah. For undergrad.
0: Yeah, it's, it's for the best. I, you know.
1: Hey, that's that's what us three uh, have in common.
0: <laughs> um, I also got rejected from Berkeley. I kind of like Berkeley too, but anyways.
1: I like uh, the idea of Berkeley, but I don't. I don't think I would have would have gone if I got into yeah. UCLA. I would be there in a in a heartbeat.
0: Oh wow! Okay, yeah. okay.
1: But I think for me, especially with my high school, it was very competitive, and I think if you did well in school, you were cool. Like that helped mm. with your social game, and. You know, it was like the people that were really, really smart and got good grades, but appeared like they weren't trying. Like, I feel like those were the real popular kids. And like, just to kind of paint a picture, the cheerleaders, the demographic of the cheerleaders was a little bit more like Filipina and Latina. uh, Whereas the dance team, those were all the Chinese, Taiwanese girls. And I feel like they were way more popular. So like, even that paradigm... Uh, just being different from a traditional high school i thought made walnut very very interesting mm. and like our high school's dance team they were exceptional but they were really able to balance that extracurricular with their academics like they were all extremely extremely smart
0: okay that sounds like a lot to balance though so like yeah
1: it was so yeah it was <laughs> like, like some
0: pressure feel I, i'm like already hearing this i feel like oh i remember like the high school pressure of like doing all this extracurricular and then pad your, like, essay, your, your college uh, applications and stuff. And, yeah, I remember that kind of my, – my high school wasn't that pressured, but, like, uh, okay, I, I feel where you're coming from, yeah.
1: It was hard. It was <laughs> a lot of pressure. And I remember it was a very important question. Like, were you going to go on the IB path or you were going to go on the AP path? Oh,
0: uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think
1: a lot of my friends ended up doing IB, and I, I dropped down to AP, and I feel like that's the kind of decision that you'll, you'll get some judgment on.
0: Oh, interesting. You know, and
1: like, not just from your friends, not just from your peers, but from their parents. Okay. Like, oh, why did your son drop at IB? You know, like, and is what's those kind of...
0: Yeah, because that, that might be a little bit after us uh, IB. IB yeah, is what, the
1: International Baccalaureate Program. It's like a... Yeah, it's like a... Gosh, how, how would I even pitch this? Just like a, a so very... a level
0: above AP?
1: I think it's like a different path. Uh, uh, okay. But it, it definitely prepares you for college in a slightly different way. Like AP, you're just legit taking college level classes in terms of the curriculum and the standards. Whereas I feel like IB, they put you on on a specific path. Like everyone that takes IB have essentially the same classes and the same extracurricular, no, not extracurricular, but like everyone in IB has to take a class called Theory of Knowledge, TOK, for example. Okay. And that's a class that you have to be in IB to have access to. Mm. Um whereas AP you can kind of mix and match the different classes you want to take IB I feel like you choose what your higher level is going to be whether it be biology or history and then everything else kind of fits into pieces uh but like for the rest for the rest of it it's like fairly structured in terms of what you're going to take so it was definitely a different path and that was not the right path for me <laughs> um so what I did is I just I just like loaded up on AP classes, okay. and I, I took a bunch of classes at my community college, and I think that really paid off, especially in San Diego, because there were so many students. Yeah, that you know the the priority of being able to sign up for classes was a huge thing. Yeah, but because I had so many AP credits and uh, and like class credits from uh, Mount Sac, okay. it really got me some good registration time. So I was able to take everything I wanted. With like, like a JP's class, online.
0: I guess, or yeah, yeah, that's yeah. dope. Um. From so you dated a white girl, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> so okay, so, so let's trajectory walnut, grew up in walnut. Uh, you went to a semi competitive high school, it sounds like. Yeah, very competitive, very, very competitive. I, we had
1: like, I don't remember the exact number, but it, I want to say we were in the double digits in terms of valedictorians. So oh, this wow. is like everyone had a 4.0, Jesus, and I don't even remember how they ended up choosing the one final valedictorian but they for sure all had straight A's
0: okay so you grew up and then you went uh, elementary school you went to Chinese school um so it's interesting because you saw both sides you saw like kind of the gangster Asians and you also saw the over competitive high achieving overachieving Asians too in, I definitely in the, did. in the SoCal area and then you went to UC San Diego met JP like oh you know what fuck that I want to be a filmmaker and then go to USC culture shock
1: I mean yeah that culture shock it hit but I really I really still ended up finding my community and it was this one advanced class called 480 Uh, so this is like the undergrad thesis and basically production students would take all the jobs that were really wanted. So you know obviously writer, director, producer cinematographer like those were all the coveted positions. Sure. Editing and sound also coveted, but you know what no one wanted to do? No one wanted to do production design. So they would always need to go to other majors to find the production designers. So I think mm. when I was a sophomore or junior, no, definitely not my first year. When I was a junior at USC, yeah, I uh, I took that class and I did I did production design and like that really helped me find this crew of people that I really loved and Mm. some of the people in that crew like I still kick it with today Um, like the producer on our project like now she's working for um, uh, oh gosh I'm forgetting her name the uh, the creator of Smilf and uh, you know like the DP like now he's running like a really now he owns his own like (laughs) camera rental shop and he's doing really really well with that Um, shout out to evidence and yeah like that was just like a crew that I really, really loved. Um, and you know you're you're making that film together. You're in the trenches. and of course, like mm-hmm. the times that you do get to relax a little bit, you're gonna go to like the parties with them. And I think that's how that's how I started to like meet more people and become more comfortable around other people because uh, we all had this like this this common passion, and that was a love for film, yeah. so. It doesn't matter where you're from if you bond over a filmmaker like that's that's gonna be just a common language uh, and then yeah I was just like on this other one of these other like advanced films and uh, I met this girl she I think she was like the set photographer and we started chatting and you know we started dating after a little while
0: mm.
1: um, but she was like she, I thought I thought her taste in films were like really really dope she was the she was the one that, like, turned me on to EY Shunji, and, like, oh. I had never seen, you know, All About Louie Choo Choo before her, but, like, I remember watching that with with my ex, and, you know, we made, like, dude, we made, like, two... Do you remember when, like, they used to do the Doritos Super Bowl commercial yeah, competitions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, Sasha and I, we... Sasha's the name of my ex. We, uh, we shot two of those commercials for one year, and <laughs> one of them was actually with the Fung Brothers. Okay, uh, And yeah, it was, yeah. like they were just like really fun and we you know we co-directed them together um, and we co-edited them, co-edited them together and they were just like a lot of fun to make you know so there was nothing that made me happier than being able to work on projects like that with someone that I really cared about
0: mmm yeah and another thing you brought up about US, USC is about these these other Asian creatives kind of not wanting to have anything to do with you at start at the start I mean Is there well, This is my conjecture Let me know if, I, if I'm If I'm beating around the right path But like Is somehow Asianness and creativeness Like Are they sort of like They can't exist in the same space For some reason For some people Or like Why do you think that was Why was that sort of uh, Was that kind of bear- Or did they see you as competition maybe I'm just kind of curious about that You know
1: the truth is, I just think that, I just think they thought I wasn't very cool. Like, oh. all the, like, shedding of the asian and, like, me representing something that they try to get rid of in their own lives. I think that is, that could potentially be a stretch. Like, that might not be the truth, but that uh, is how I intellectualize it. Ah. Uh, uh, I just think they, I just think they didn't see me as someone very cool. Um which is totally fair, which is totally fair. That's messed I can, up, man. I can easily come off as just, like, some nerdy Asian <laughs> dude. So, uh, I, don't, I don't blame them one bit, but...
0: Did Dan do that to you? Dan Chen?
1: I don't know, man, but... How dare all, he? All, all <laughs> I can to say is, like, facts, and the facts, facts are... facts. When I saw Dan Chen, I was like, this guy's a cool motherfucker. Oh. And I saw, like, how he was able to, like, command a set and I actually met I think I met him as a camera operator like he was operating on one of those 480 classes or one of those 480 advanced films yeah and I was just like dude I I really like the way this guy works same with his DP Phillips like I just thought he was a really dope cinematographer and really knew how to carry himself so I think it was just like I just respected them a lot and You know, so maybe like when I approached them for the first time or like introduced myself, maybe I was just like a bumbling idiot. Like who knows? Uh, Uh, uh. But the fact is, they were really cool, and they were very good at what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. So I had a lot of respect for them.
0: That's cool, man. And from um, in at USC, then did you discover like because your focus now is writing, it seems like, and did that kind of did that focus or that passion for writing that blossom at USC or was that kind of afterwards or yeah where 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 did you think that happened
1: I mean I still have directing aspirations uh it's just right now I'm I'm really focusing on on writing you know James you know I I went off to Argentina and shot a short film earlier yeah. this year
0: so uh Henry he went to South America Argentina and shot a short film uh about K-pop uh a South American Let me get this correct. A Korean South uh, Argentinian uh, woman. Yeah, Korean Argentine. Korean Argentinian who had aspirations of being a K pop star or has aspiration to be a K pop star. Yeah. Yeah, that's
1: essentially it. Yeah. Yeah, Korean Argentine, uh, you know, that's like her secret, that's like her secret dream. And if you know anything about the country, you know, K pop has essentially abandoned Argentina just because they're. Economy has kind of been in shambles as of late uh, So whenever they tour even the smallest k-pop groups They'll hit Brazil they'll hit Peru, but they'll skip over Argentina altogether. What? and That's not gonna stop the fans, you know If you look at if you look at the countries down there Argentina has a huge k-pop fan community mm. um, So all they really want is a little bit of recognition and they're willing to still hold like all these festivals just for themselves uh, they're willing to you know gather and like you know practice the dances just so that they can film it and put it on YouTube, and all they want is like a little bit of recognition like that would make their entire year uh so I really wanted to follow someone in that community and see mm. like what their life is like um so yeah that 's essentially what the short is about,
0: okay, but yeah about um but yeah, back to yeah. like
1: the the whole writing writing thing like yeah, so I always saw myself as a writer director, you know, I think I was. I was in, in film school and wanted to, you know, direct my first feature right out of the gate and have that under my belt by the age of twenty five. And of course like <laughs> I was in for a really good Like awakening. Citizen
0: King kind of style. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh and the truth is I just I I wrote a few shorts while I was I was at USC and ironically Jing and I actually wrote a short film while we were at USC. Uh but yeah, I wrote a few shorts that weren't very good, the ones that I wrote on my own at least. And then you know post-college just kind of swept me away. You know, I worked at I worked at CAA for three years, um, the talent agency. And uh, you know, there really wasn't that much time to write until I want to say my third year into the job, and that's when I linked up with this guy named Ivan, Ivan saying And I was like, you know, I have this idea, like can we work on this together? And then we started meeting up twice a week. I feel like we never, we never missed one. We would meet right here, right at that table. Oh. Uh, we would order Volcano, and we would just like, yeah, break the break the story. And then we wrote a we wrote a feature about, um, about being able to record your dreams and what happens when one of those dream recordings is swapped with someone else's. Oh. um so it was like a it was like a really interesting little. Grounded sci-fi feature, and we finished it. We finished it. Like I haven't, I haven't visited it in a very, very long time. But you know, that was a fun little story. So, like that was when I really got back into into writing, and it was it was well timed because uh, after that, I was pretty much ready to leave CAA. I knew that I didn't want to be an agent.
0: And you just you realized, so you actually had some aspirations to be an agent before, kind of.
1: I mean, I think. When you work at a place like that, naturally you're gonna drink the Kool Aid
0: a little bit. It's one. It's what it's CAA, what William Morris, or yeah, know, it's, it's one CAA, b- WME, UTA.
1: Th- any of those. Any of those agencies. Uh, you kind of you kind of feed into that lifestyle a little bit, and not everyone does. But I think for me, I definitely did drink some of the Kool Aid, uh, <laughs> and I thought it was I thought it was really cool. Like I thought that what the agents were doing in terms of advocating for. You know, young filmmakers, I thought that was really cool,
0: mm.
1: especially the group that uh, I, wasn't a, I wasn't an assistant in this group, but I was an intern for this group. It was called Film Finance at the time. And what they would do is they would take the passion projects of their, the agency's clients and find ways to essentially finance these indie darling passion projects. Mm. And those would be the ones that would go to Sundance and sell for you know big amounts of money. Uh, so I thought that was really cool because I got to see how they really packaged a movie and how they could access financing outside of the studio system. Like Mm. that was all super educational for me because I never knew even knew that existed. I thought like if you were going to independently finance a movie, you just had to, you know, max out your credit cards like Justin Lin did. (laughs)
0: Oh no, don't do that. (laughs) Uh,
1: so like to see that there was an infrastructure in place And there were these financiers who not only were they financing independent films, but they actually saw it as a legitimate business model. Like, I thought that was amazing. Oh, cool. Um, So, yeah, like they what they would say is, you know, working at an agency that really is like grad school. And I wholeheartedly believe that. Mm. So I didn't get my MFA in anything, uh, but I feel like I did get a master's at CA.
0: Mm. And for then, so the writing kind of took off for you with with your mentor, Ivan. Uh, kind of like, you left CAA, and then what, what did you want to do after that? Like, were you kind of like trying to, were you like, you know what, I'm going to bet on myself, I'm going to hunker down, just write? Or what was that kind of transition like?
1: I think writing with Ivan reminded me that I do want to be on the creative side of things. And I knew I had to leave CAA to really take that step. Mm. Uh, so it really reignited writer director aspirations in me mm-hmm. so i knew that i had to leave caa for, for a very specific job like i wasn't going to be one of those development folks at a production company uh i knew very specifically that i wanted to work for a filmmaker and there were a lot of really great ones that came across my desk like um i'm gonna name drop a little bit right now but <laughs> name drop i remember jj abrams was an opportunity because his assistant morgan Uh, who I met on one of those USC thesis films um, because Morgan was about to leave to shoot her first feature and she knew that she needed someone to replace the second assistant for J.J. Uh, Mark Webb was an opportunity. Drew Goddard was an opportunity. Um, There were a lot of these, a lot of really, really incredible filmmakers that fortuitously, like, I had a chance to work for. But there was one specifically that, I wanted to hold out for and that was that was Catherine Bigelow so when she called one day and said Henry I'm looking for an assistant do you know anybody I was like I would love to raise my hand and be considered like I would love to volunteer as tribute essentially <laughs> so she got really excited by that um, oh and I, I sorry I should set up by saying my boss that I worked for at CAA he was this hotshot agent in motion picture literary, so representing writers, directors, and producers for film. Uh, And he worked with, you know, uh, from filmmakers like Edgar Wright to Joe Cornish, uh, as well as screenwriters like John Logan, Tony Kushner, uh, Peter Strawn, Stephen Knight. Um, He just represented incredible, incredible people, Uh, George C. Wolfe, like just amazing, amazing folks. Uh, But Catherine was one of his clients, and he was with her during the time of Hurt Locker. So he was at her side for a very, very amazing time in her career. So when Catherine came calling, I was extremely excited. Uh, it took a while, but Brian gave me his blessing. So then I went off to work for Catherine. And from her, I learned so, so much. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw Detroit from beginning to end with her. Uh, but I always tell people that what I got from her was really how her mind works like Mm. she really approaches art from an activist's perspective so you know she's never going to be someone that you'll catch at the Women's march or you know picketing uh it's it's really her art that she protests through Mm. and that was a very very valuable lesson for me Uh, because it made me question myself and think about what values do i stand for Mm. and what do I want to say about this world? Like, what are the injustices that I see around me? Uh, and that really birthed the initial nugget that eventually became Salvage. Mm. Um, the The most important lesson was really seeing, you know, making this making this work, making a film. Uh, you know, it takes it takes so much work yeah. uh, and energy, and you really pour your soul into it. But if it's not really saying anything, then what's the point? Like, I think that's what I really got from Catherine everything that she makes especially now like it has to it has to leave an impact it has to change the world in some way and i think like to strive for that is is extremely important and it's something that i try to do in all my work now
0: cuz detroit is it's massive man that's like a it's very epic like just i just from the opening shots like there's a lot of stuff happening mm-hmm. just in those few couple minutes like the riots and stuff and i thought mm-hmm. i'm just as a filmmaker I'm just like dang logistically how how are they pulling this all off you know and like
1: it's so impressive it's crazy so impressive
0: the crowd management and then of course when we get to the Hotel Algiers it's it's more contained but then you know all the stuff happening around it's it's pretty it's intense Yeah, yeah
1: to make that film like to pull off what Catherine pulled off yeah I'm just I'm just amazed I I'm really so in awe and you know she i think she references this one film uh that has really become important for me as well it's called the battle of algiers okay. did you see that in JP's class
0: uh, maybe what well, can you what's it about or... uh
1: it is well it's a black and white film uh gosh the filmmaker's name is escaping me but it's essentially the um it's the muslim community in, in algiers okay and how you know the french the french were really racist against them so uh, there was like a there was a major conflict and that led to that led to a lot of terrorism oh jeez you know by the muslims but yeah. when you watch the film you're really in the perspective of of the muslim characters mm. and by the end of it yes they're committing acts of terrorism but you understand their cause and you really empathize Towards everything that they're doing, uh, just a really, really remarkable piece of filmmaking, and uh, I know it's inspired many, many filmmakers. Uh, but I really, I, I watched that film, and I really see, I really understand Catherine better as well, mm. as not just, as not just a filmmaker, but also as as a person who is choosing like her next subject. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend that film. I, I think. When I watched it in JP's class, I was too young, I was too immature <laughs> to really appreciate a film like that. Uh but I, I actually rewatched it recently at AFI and yeah, it just it just blew me away. It wow. like it destroyed me. That film oh, destroyed geez.
0: me. Uh what made you hold out for Catherine in particular, you think? You, those are some big names that you dropped there. Um.
1: I mean Here what I'll say is because my boss at CAA represented her, I already had this relationship with her. But I think just kind of being in Brian's ears or sorry, um, just kind of just hearing what Catherine was working on, uh, in terms of like the way that she was thinking about like her next projects that she wanted to pursue, I knew that those were the kind of films that I would really benefit from, uh, you know, getting any, any type of, any type of osmosis um, in terms of being able to hear. Sorry, let me re answer that question. Um, Why did I hold out for Catherine? I feel like working at CAA and working for Brian, I was able to kind of see the projects that she was approaching next. And when I think about the kind of projects that she really wants to make. It was a no-brainer. Mm. Like everything that was on her slate interested me way more than the next Star Wars movie. <laughs> you know? So Yo,
0: shout out to JJ Abrams. What's up?
1: <laughs> uh so I I think the choice was very clear. And everyone in the building knew that, that was that was the director I wanted to work for mm. and and the time he just worked out. So I'm I'm very, very lucky, I'm very,
2: very grateful for that experience. Yeah. And then how did you transfer? Transition from that job to what you're doing these days.
1: Yeah, so two years... I worked for Catherine for three years. Two years into it, Trump got elected. Uh, or, sorry, maybe just like a year into it. But in my second year working for Catherine, that's when I really started to ask myself that question. Like, what were these... What what around me was I not happy with? And
0: Because Detroit was released in 2017, so production was during... Was.
1: Yeah, and this was this was happening like even when we were in, even before uh, they went off to shoot Detroit, um, I was already asking myself these these questions. Mm. And you know, I remember Trump was not very nice to Asians. Uh, he was not very nice. And
0: uh, yeah, one rally, he was like, an Asian guy asked a question. He's they asked him, hey, where are you from? And he's like, well, I'm from you know, I'm from Colorado, whatever area they were in and Trump's like oh, you know what i mean and it was just like are you kidding me like a pre- a president a presidential candidate is going to talk this way to like Asians like anyways yeah
1: completely. yeah he just he 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 did not treat immigrants nicely at all so i really thought about it and i think like the one way that i could do anything like create any type of ripple uh was through representation you know and like that word gets thrown around a lot but for me it was you know, I got to create a piece of content that is actually going to put Asians on screen in a meaningful way. Uh, You know, that means like not about, like not leaning into any type of, any sort of stereotype. Uh, So I think the first thing that I started thinking about was, well, how have we as Asian Americans infiltrated American culture? And, you know, I thought a lot about, You know the tech space. You know fashion with like Alexander Wang and Bobby Hundreds and and what these guys are all doing. But then very quickly it came. It became about food. Mm. And I thought a lot about David Chang. I thought a lot about Roy Choi. I knew those guys were going to have shows of their own. They were going to have biopics on their lives. It was only a matter of time. And and so I knew I wanted you know my show to be about food. Uh, And. I pitched that exactly to Jing. I remember we were at Highland Bowl um, eating pizza and then the next day he gave me a call and he said, you know, Henry, I've been thinking a lot about what you said and I definitely agree and I would love to write this with you. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, So yeah, like, of course, that was like a nugget of an idea. Uh, You know, with, with Jing, like we were really able to deepen the themes and enrich and inject this emotional core into the, into the story about, you know, these millennial hustlers who are trying to, uh, start up their own brick and mortar, brick and mortar restaurant in Los Angeles. Um, and then, yeah, we just, we wrote it. We spent, you know, the first half of 2017 writing it after it was in a shape that we were comfortable sending out. We sent it to like all my old CA connections and, uh, you know, essentially, some people read it, a lot of people just ignored it flat out. Uh, but the people that did read it, they gave very broad notes, and it's really no, it's no shade to to my friends, like, I get it, they're all busy, they have their own scripts that they gotta read for their jobs, for their bosses. Uh, and then when a friend sends you their script, you know, it goes to the bottom of the pile. So like, I totally get it. But, you know, the script really didn't go anywhere, and Jing and I, like, we looked at each other and we were like, okay, well, what do we do now? Like. Do we like find another project to write? Um,
0: and at this point, you're living off of savings, I'm assuming, or or did you have like a job at the time?
1: I was still working for Catherine. God. I was still working for Catherine. Jing was still directing commercials uh, okay. in China and the United States. Oh wow! Um, and then yeah, we were like, okay, well, what else can we do? So we continue to write the show bible beyond the pilot. So the oh, future episodes. This is all for bible. salvage. Salvage, yeah. Uh, and, you know, once we had that, we were like, okay, what else? What else can we do? What else can we do to, like, make a splash? Because another document is just going to have the same fate as a script. So we debated a lot of things. We were like, okay, do we sh- try to, like, put some money together and just shoot the pilot ourselves? Do we maybe shoot a few scenes and cut together this sizzle reel or, like, a trailer for the show? Uh, and then very quickly... <laughs> We realized, and actually we were inspired. We were inspired by two of our friends, Tony Rettenmeyer and Joel Taylor, um, who are like two of the hottest screenwriters and directors in Hollywood right now. Um, they had a show called Bertha Cool, uh, a high school show. Mm-hmm. And they put their entire show Bible on this visual, interactive uh, website. And you could scroll through it. It was really, really well designed. You could listen to the soundtrack to really get a vibe for what the show they were trying to create was and you know I looked at that and I really thought about our characters and how these are like young hustlers who use Instagram and social media to really promote themselves and I was like okay what if we put our entire bible on Instagram (laughs) and you know I remember we were at we were at Jing's house in Highland Park and he was like that's amazing how do we do it and uh, he pulled out like 10 sheets of You know, blank paper. We literally started drawing squares, like, trying to lay out exactly what we were going to do. And, yeah, we, like, tried a few iterations. Uh, The first few, like, didn't really work. And then Jing had an amazing idea. He was like, okay, Salvage is based on our real chef friend named DJ. Does he have any notebooks that he scribbles on? And then we went over to, to his... To his uh, his loft in downtown LA, and he gave us like four of his notebooks, and we scanned those pages, and those pages became the backdrop to oh. to our Instagram feed. And once that's we had that, that is. okay, that really made the the entire layout come alive because sorry, that's I'm gonna what I get distracted. Made it
0: I'm gonna look it up right now, but yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, go yeah. for it. Um, that's what really made it come alive. Mm. And uh, you know, once we once we had that, and you know, the rest of the images kind of came to place uh salvage that was that was it that was it um salvage so then,
0: dot the show on instagram yeah
1: yeah man that was that was a solid month of work um so yeah like in these in these squares you know you can listen to the soundtrack you can read the bits and pieces of the bible that we had written and if you if you're really careful you can uh you can find some of the other instagram accounts that we created. So it goes very, it goes several layers deep. Um, but jumping past all that, we made this, we made this Instagram Bible that we were really proud of. Uh, so we, but we didn't know how Hollywood was, was going to react. So, so all the people that didn't read the scripts, <laughs> we sent another email and that was just the link to the Instagram. Uh. So if you didn't have 30 minutes to read our pilot, fine. You surely have five seconds to click this Instagram link. And sure enough, it worked. Like, All of a sudden, people were opening this Instagram and they were like, okay, what is this show? Because at that time, I think the only thing that was on the air was maybe Fresh Off the Boat. Uh. And our show could not be farther than Fresh Off the Boat in terms of content and tone and and everything. So once they saw the Instagram, once they saw what kind of vibe we were going for, they were all intrigued. Um, And eventually, I sat down with... My friend, who's at uh, an amazing company, she read it. She was really into it. Uh, asked us if it would be cool to share it with her manager friend. We said, of course. It got shared with the manager. The manager called us in for a meeting right away. Signed us, and uh, wow. and then really started everything for us. So, I mean, Jing and I, we really, we really owe a lot to definitely to salvage. Like, I mean, the writing has to be good. If like you had a killer Instagram show bible, and then the script. As like the follow-up is trash, like it doesn't matter, it's not going anywhere. Um, so of course, like the script had to be good. Um, and then yeah, like our managers got us aligned with several producers. We ended up going with a company called Make Ready. Uh, Make Ready developed it with us. Um, we did a few rewrites, and then we pitched it around town, and uh, and we're we're waiting to see where it ultimately lands.
0: Yeah, as someone who's who's been down the rabbit hole of that Instagram, it's it's, it's multi-layered because each Instagram account, each main character, have, they have their own section as well. Yeah, and, and a lot of
1: people don't get that far, man, so I really appreciate you for diving <laughs> deep.
0: I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like a geek about that kind of stuff because I was like, so, oh yeah, um, for our listeners, Henry and I, we met through the mentorship program for the Taiwanese American Film Festival.
1: We probably should have started with that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, I can add this in the beginning. I mean, yeah, so <laughs> Henry and I, so basically, I had applied to this pitch competition for the film festival and um, got accepted. And, and what part of the program is, is that you get connected with a mentor for six weeks to work on a pitch to be presented at the film festival in November. And this was in October at the time when we first met. <clears throat> so I got linked up with Henry, and I think they did a – I spoke to the uh, Cindy, uh, kind of the coordinator for, uh, for this uh, mentorship program, and they spent a lot of time kind of looking at the content of both creators and trying to find a good match. And <clears throat> it's kind of like surreal because going through Salvage, Tino, and Three Ninjas, I could see a lot of themes with my script or my, sto- my ideas and connecting with Henry's. So I think they did a great job connecting us together. Um, but one thing I want to talk about was <clears throat> the reason I went down that rabbit hole is like, first of all, I want to make sure like, okay, where where's this guy coming from? I kind of get a feel for who you who you were, right? Because it is it sharing writing or sharing creative projects, um, you know, it's it's very it can be very vulnerable because is it ex- in a sense it's an expression of who you are right I think there's there's a truth in saying that you have to have a thick skin in this business but what's also true to that is that a lot of writers or creators are very sensitive people <laughs> and so I am I definitely am one yeah yeah I mean it's true it's good to have a thick skin but at the same time you know uh, we're sensitive as well and uh, I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to be very honest with someone. If I'm gonna be very honest and vulnerable with someone, I wanna kinda of see where they're coming from. So that's kinda, of, I went down the, the rabbit hole of Salvage the Show, and I was like, okay, nice. Like, so, like, fresh off the boat is kinda of like Panda Express or Orange Chicken. And then, no, but Salvage the Show, I got the feeling like, okay, this is more like gritty, like, you know, Kogi, or this is more like, like urban, kinda of like, I guess the word you you like to use is subculture, right? And I, I was, like, very attracted to these characters. And then when I read Teen, I was like, oh, shit, okay, I see where this guy's coming from, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's no shade to Fresh Off the Boat, it's just...
0: No, nah, you can throw shade, it's fine.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's like, I, first of all, I, I I don't watch Fresh Off the Boat, so I...
0: So, Eddie Huang doesn't watch been, Fresh Off the Boat
2: either. It's been canceled, so...
1: <laughs> it, it has been canceled. Uh, my, I mean, my friend Kyle Lau writes on this this final season, so, you know, I, I, I don't want to spend this time, like you know maligning the show it's just i knew right off the bat that tonally salvage as well as any tv show i ever create is never going to be a broadcast type show because i want to be able to take my characters to very uncomfortable places that broadcast is just never going to scratch Mm. you know so just that just on that conceit alone i just knew that philosophically salvage was never going to be like fresh off the boat, and if you read the script with that preconception, you were going to be in for a rude awakening. Essentially. Yeah,
0: and th- yeah, like you said, n- no shade to fresh off the boat. That was, it's kind of like looking at the evolution of you know you know word representation, right? Yeah, it seems that for minorities, one of the first steps for you know for a deeper or more representative representation is through broadcast or through comedy these seem to be the kind of like the first avenues that are open to us and then yeah as the as because of fresh off the boat off, off the boat there were other shows There was like dr ken and now i think it paved the way for like you know constance we to play you know in crazy rich asian so i think this is all part of the evolution so like no no shade it's it's all part it's all it's all steps i think in the right direction yeah 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 absolutely now uh from from Salvage then, where did like Three Ninjas or Tino, like what, what's kind of the order of these other projects coming up or was it kind of simultaneous or?
1: Yeah, and just to, just to put a perspective on the timeline, uh, we made the Bible <coughs> late, like in the fall of 2017. I was still working for Catherine. Maybe around February of 2018 is when my job with Catherine came to an end and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do next. Uh, so of course my parents were like, "Go work at Facebook." Like I hear they're <laughs> hiring. I heard Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> is hiring. Uh, is that easy? Yeah. But yeah, so like they, their their advice was find another full time job. Go wow. work at a studio. You know, get another job where you're not going to be worried about your paycheck.
0: They still weren't convinced yet.
1: They still weren't convinced. Wow, yet. even so, we were working
0: with Catherine. Okay, all right.
1: But for me, it was really important that. I felt like salvage was really gonna pop off very very soon and i just couldn't lock myself down to another full-time job like i just i know that my heart wouldn't have been in it so i decided you know i'm just gonna go unemployed for a little while uh and once again that never would have happened unless i made a deal with my parents so the deal was i'm going to go unemployed from february to july i'm going to give it until july and If I am able to sell salvage, then great. I'm gonna I'm gonna go create this show, and if not, then starting in July, I will start looking for another full time job. I will knock on Mark Zuckerberg's door, and figure out a way to sneak into Facebook. Um,
0: They have good uh, lunches, you know. I, I, anyways, sorry.
1: But yeah, my parents said okay, and they let me really go all in on salvage and i think that was the time when Jing and i started thinking about some other ideas we that might have been the time or maybe even earlier but like we wrote this like master of none spec that followed uh that followed i forgot the asian guys
0: kelvin the new character
1: it was an episode on like him losing his job and like what that looked like um, and it was ironically that was an episode where him and lena Waites' character really bonded because uh, that was interesting to us. Like, that would have been an interesting episode.
0: Hmm. Yeah, you don't really see the two of them interact too much. But yeah.
1: Yeah, and then, <clears throat> and then we started thinking about the initial nugget that eventually become became Tino, which is our our high school murder mystery. Um, so that started off as like a different title, and it was it was very primarily focused on a personal high school story of mine. Uh, I won't go into the details, but. Essentially I was in a catfish relationship before catfishing was a thing. Uh, or not before catfishing was a thing, but before it was called catfishing. And I wanted to write a show about that where like a main character is catfished and he spends the entire season trying to find out the identity of this person. And eventually this catfish infiltrates the surrounding high schools and ruins several different lives. Um, but long story short, like, that project became very, very interesting, and, and once again, Gene came in and like injected it with some incredible themes, uh, he came up with an amazing setting, so instead of setting it somewhere in Southern California, like a high school that I grew up in, we decided to move it up north to a location that James is more familiar with, yo, yo. Uh, somewhere like a Cupertino, so like our fictionalized version of Cupertino, um, so that show is called Tino. Um but eventually yeah like around July like as my as my time was running out in the deal that I struck with my parents uh <laughs> is when we got our managers and once our managers started getting salvage out like I really was kind of able to make it by like July August uh I still wasn't paid yet but we knew that our project was at a studio home and we were going to get paid to to start doing some rewrites on it so wow it was, it was really, really good timing. And we also knew that we had other ideas. Like, it wasn't just going to be Salvage. It was also going to be, you know, this high school show. It was also going to be, you know, some of these features that we were cooking up. Um, so, yeah, like, that was, that was awesome. And one of, one of the early fans of, of Salvage um, is this guy named Rishi Rajani. He was working at this company called Studio 8 at the time. And uh, he was always a fan of Salvage, even from the very, very early days. Uh, he knew that his company wouldn't really jump on board, but he was getting ready to work for Lena Waith. So he was about to leave Studio 8 to become Lena Waith's executive. And when that was about to happen, he hit us up to catch up. And uh, we sat down and he brought us this opportunity. Uh, and that was to staff on the sequel as a series of Boomerang, the beloved film from 1992. Uh, and that was starring
0: Eddie Murphy, Rob Robin Gibbons, yeah, yeah, uh, Halle
1: Berry, you know, Halle Berry, yeah, you know, Young Chris Rock, like they're just that. That cast is stacked, uh, and it, and it meant a lot to so many people as I as I learned. Um, but yeah, Rishi brought us that opportunity. Jing and I, obviously, we never staffed in a writer's room before, uh, so that was like very very exciting to us. Um, we interviewed with Rishi, Lena, and our showrunner, Ben Corey Jones, and uh and got the job. So we were in that room basically late twenty eighteen and it was an amazing experience. So like after that finally my parents were like, okay, you're kinda doing this. <laughs> but what about your insurance? When are you gonna get insurance? You know, that whole thing. So uh yeah, that like led to boomerang and then we did like this uh we did this rewrite on a basketball movie that LeBron James was producing. Oh uh, through his company and that was called hustle for legendary um, that was a wild experience that took us basically to the end of 2018 um, and I guess that project has since left legendary and is now set up in Netflix uh, and then also during that time like there was this there was this producer that was working for Mark Platt who was trying to get a reboot of three ninjas off the ground and you know when that email came in through our manager, I was like no way no way are they going to reboot this movie Uh, because it did it really did mean a lot to my childhood (laughs) Um, I saw it late I saw it a little bit later in life but I just couldn't believe it how old
0: were you when you first saw it?
1: I don't know man like an early teen like maybe I was like 14 years old or something like that it came out when I was 2 so I definitely didn't see it when I was 2 years old sure yeah Uh, but it just like that movie it felt like home alone you know like yeah he even does like really yeah yeah yeah. it's just like that it was in like that wheelhouse that kind of tapestry um so i was like okay well what is that reboot gonna look like uh and i was ready i was actually ready to just pass wow and jing was like dude why are you gonna pass when like you don't even give it a shot let's at least take a meeting um so we went in there
0: Oh, so you came out like, oh, how dare they make a reboot? Or I
1: was like, there's just no way. It was it wasn't even like, how dare they? As in, uh, you know, these guys are gonna fuck it up. It was more just like, that movie meant so much to me that I don't even want to touch it.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. I feel you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and who knows? I might still screw it up. Who knows? But uh, <laughs> I think that I think that Jing was right. Uh, we went in. We took the we took the meeting and pitched them just like a very personal story of ours uh and and a lot of asian-american son of immigrants which was the lunchbox moment and he loved it he loved it and he thought that we we would be approaching whatever take we came up with from a place of true authenticity
0: right because uh, the original sorry to interrupt but like the original three ninjas they're supposed to be a quarter asian you know yeah, they're yeah. supposed
1: to, but the actors are definitely all white. <laughs> the yeah, mom's so three... supposed to be
0: half white, uh, half uh, Asian, yep. half white.
1: Yeah. Yep. Three white kids getting trained by their Japanese grandfather to become ninjas.
0: <laughs> Not problematic at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but it's cool. I mean, Jing and I, like, we have we have a fun way to to flip all that now. So we're really excited about our take. Mm. Um. And yes that was. I feel like that was also 2018. So 2018 was a pretty wild year for us. Uh. We went into Atlanta to watch them shoot our episode of Boomerang. Oh,
0: yeah. Uh, Which I watched. I, I really enjoyed that episode, actually. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks. yeah, yeah. I've only seen the pilot and that episode. And I don't know. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it more than the pilot, to be honest. Yeah, because, you know, yeah, pilot's probably just setting stuff up. And, but,
1: no, yeah. I appreciate that. And yeah, it, yeah. it really came full circle because the director of our episode was that guy, Jewel Taylor, who oh. wrote that Bible for that high school show that really inspired the Instagram. Uh, and Jewel was also a USC student. He was in the grad program. So was his partner, Tony. Um, and yeah, once again, Jewel is like the hottest director in Hollywood right now. They're like mm. the hottest screenwriters in, in Hollywood right now. It's it's unreal. So it was cool to go to Atlanta, hang out with Rishi, hang out with Jewel, hang out with Tony. Uh, and I'll never forget, we were like in the hotel room and Tony and Jewel were not stressed about directing the episode of Boomerang they were stressed about Space Jam because <laughs> they uh, they wrote Space Jam
0: oh wow! so like
1: they're working on like this reboot that is like super epic or I guess there's like a sequel I don't know uh, and then of course like we're doing this reboot um, so I feel like Joel is like they're just always like a few steps ahead of us but that's all good <laughs> that's all
0: good uh, if, for our listeners who don't know uh, the episode that Henry wrote is uh, called Housekeeping it's episode 8 season 1 for Boomerang on BET which
1: I love um, real quick, yeah. I love the fact that we initially were slotted to pitch episode four, which we were really excited about because we could write our episode and then for the rest of the, for the rest of the contract, we could basically be chilling and just like pitching ideas. So like we wanted to get it done as yeah. quick as possible. Yeah. And then something happened. I don't know if somebody finessed their way into that for episode four slot or what, but we were all of a sudden pushed to episode eight. But then I thought about. You know, in Chinese, like, eight is obviously way luckier than four. (laughs) So I was not mad. I was no longer mad at that. And I think episode eight was really a a good place for our episode. And it was really leading to, like, the final episodes. You know Uh, what I mean? So I was very happy. I was very happy with how everything turned out.
0: For those those who don't know, uh, four sounds like death in Chinese. And then eight is, like, a a number associated with wealth. And uh, what I liked about that episode is it's very intimate. It's mm-hmm. about these three dudes friends kind of reconciling some of the uh this is something I want to get to is like they're they're kind of judgments of each other you know and it's very uh it's basically synopsis wise the the of the three friends one's a director one's a pastor and the other guy is a uh i guess what he's a press agent or what, what like, he's like a, like
1: a... no he's like a um he's like an ad executive
0: ad executive yeah so they're all hanging out and uh, um yeah he's like so an the, account
1: executive at an ad, ad agency
0: right right and then and the pastor he's going through like some regret about like some bad choice he made last night um but what i liked about it was like uh, is kind of like i i think that you and jing were able to touch on sort of each other's insecurities right and how that manifests with their interactions with each other, and how they judge each other. Because um, one thing I've I've been kind of thinking about lately is that uh, I've been looking at some of my own judgmental nature. I think we've all had that, and it's like, oh, where's that coming from? You know, maybe it's coming from maybe some uh, some of my own my own shit, maybe my own insecurities, right? So I think I liked how you guys did that, and also it's a fairly like I like. Uh, there's a lot of moments where it's like non-verbal humor, which mm-hmm. I thought was fun. Like he has to get past the seat or some shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, like, that,
1: that's credit to Duval, I think.
0: <laughs> and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Because the other ones are a little bit more verbose, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. But anyways, I just wanted to yeah. fanboy a little bit about that one. Yeah. No,
1: it was cool because we were in the writer's room and they knew right off the bat that they wanted each episode to feel special and unique. So we knew very, very early on that one episode was going to be the guys episode the cast is essentially three guys three girls they're all you know young uh like mid-20s friends living in atlanta and these are like the offspring of the characters from the original boomerang film so that's why it's kind of like a sequel
0: taglines like unapologetic unapologetically black unapologetically uh young something like that yeah yeah, Mm. yeah yeah
1: um so yeah our Our episode was the three guys all in one apartment it was a bottle episode and it was the guys episode and we had some crazy ideas of how we wanted to do it like there were some wild pitches at first but we ended up doing like a very intimate bottle episode all in the pastor's the pastor character's house or his apartment and it ended up being really beautiful uh i was very happy with how it turned out Uh, Mm. and james thanks for watching it man
0: oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh what was kind of like I, the, some of the themes that you explore in your work, I notice is um, there's a feeling of friendship is a big theme, but also tension within friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Tino, for example, the brothers, one brother being super more way more popular than the other brother, and there's some sort of, I don't know, maybe inferiority complex, possibly. Um, that's also explored in Salvage as well, which we we haven't really got into. But in Salvage, it seems like if you, if you could real quick the the real the pitch of that story is basically uh, it, do you might what was the what's the pitch for that story? I guess Salvage. Uh,
1: I mean, just in terms of the actual plotting of it, like our main character, his name's DJ. Uh, his father dies, so he comes back to LA, and he has like a very specific plan of how that coming back is going gonna, is gonna to go down. He's going to bury his father. He's going to inherit his dad's shitty South Central Chinese food and donuts restaurant. He's going to sell that restaurant and he's going to use that money to start up his own dining experience. Mm-hmm. And he's going to recruit his old best friend, June. He's going to get his ex-girlfriend back and everything's going to go great. Uh, but of <laughs> course, every step along the way, it doesn't go according to plan. Really? And you know that's just like that That whole intention obstacle thing so you know yes his dad is dead um so he's like still figuring out how to deal with that emotionally um but when he when he goes to the restaurant he finds out that the restaurant's not worth anything and not only is it not worth anything his dad actually owned owed money to it so the bank technically owns the restaurant and then so yeah he's not going to make any money off of off of this chinese restaurant and then when he approaches his old Friend June, who now has like a decently successful food truck, taco truck, June wants nothing to do with him. Uh, and like, yeah, like that, that, I feel like that relationship, to me at least, was born from a relationship I had in high school where uh, my old, my old best friend and I, we wanted to start this like t-shirt business. Like, I feel like we could have been,
0: probably hundreds. we could have been Bobby hundreds if like <laughs> we, if
1: we stuck with it, because this is like 2007. Uh, and we wanted to do build a bear, but for t-shirts. So like you have a you have like a you have a station, you have a shop, you just bring in your photo your photo, or like you could design it kind of like Q Studios, and then print it out right then and there. Ah. Um, so we really wanted to get into that business, but it didn't pan out. I think we had like a really solid idea, but we had very little follow through, and we didn't really know what it would take to to pull off something like that. So that was really, to me at least, the uh, the relationship between DJ and June. Like okay. They grew up together. DJ was more the controlling one, and June was kind of like the one that was that was always bullied. But you know, he always loved to eat, and DJ always loved to cook. So they were like a great pairing together. So who are you? <laughs> uh, no, I mean I'm definitely I definitely exist in all my characters. Like I can say that for sure. Uh, I I relate to June in a lot a lot of ways, uh, but I also I also feel a strong connection to DJ, like without mm. a doubt. Um, but yeah, like I think their relationship, they they tried to do this taco truck thing in the past. Didn't really go according to plan. DJ was dealing with his own personal shit, couldn't get couldn't follow through on the taco truck. He left, went off to New York to do his own thing, to do his whole culinary school thing. And you know, he probably expected June to just do the same, to just give up on on their on their pursuit. You know, but no. Nah, June was like, I'm gonna stick with it, mm. and you know, he he built that truck on his own and was able to do it. So when DJ comes back into LA and he sees that, you know, it's up and running, it's like, you know, how how does that actually make him feel? So that's kind of what we try to explore in the scenes with DJ and June, at least.
0: Yeah, and what I what I kind of what I found very kind of cool and eerie was that. The, my, my script up war is also dealing about two friends and one being you know wh- like basically these like your best basically having a falling out with a best friend right yeah yeah and i thought that very was interesting because i saw i see that in tino i also see that in colt and rocky for your three ninjas um,
1: mm-hmm. like
0: not really falling out but they but more like this tension of like where, where do you So you think that comes stems from maybe high school, that, that relationship you had there? Or is that just a theme that you just unconsciously seem to you imbue your characters with, you know?
1: I mean, that's the core of drama. Like, I I consider myself a dramedy writer, but I, I think I <laughs> lean a little bit heavier on the drama side. Uh, that's just relationships, man. That's just uh, life. That really is just life. Mm. You know, my best friend right now, we... We have had, I want to say, like four falling outs, falling outs where I think we both believe that we would never talk to each other again, but somehow we always found a way to get back
2: into each other's lives, you know? Mm. Um, And then, yeah. not to interrupt, but uh, you you were the mentor for James on the TAF pitch competition. What sort of things do you have to do as a mentor? I mean, what kind of, do you just like provide advice on? his pitch try to refine it or
1: um I gave James like bad advice actually
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah maybe we should get into that before we forget like uh, yeah. yeah I gave By
1: James the way, like bad advice uh, and, I, okay so uh, the way I would talk about that a... is like
0: oh should I pitch my story real quick or uh, I I mean, I'll know.
1: just go into like the process a little sure, bit sure 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 yeah. so I think James and I ha- actually do have somewhat similar personalities in that uh, yeah, we both we both are like these sensitive artist types, um, and it's it's actually easy for people to rub us the wrong way, uh, but it's always about how we kind of deal with it. So even when we sat down for the first time, I really wanted to have a very honest conversation about what our boundaries would look like, and that's not just about like James taking up too much of my personal time. It was more about how were we going to work together creatively? Like, if I gave him a note, how would he receive that note? And how would he reflect that into the work? Um, Would I feel like it would be a safe place to be fully honest with him? You know, those were the kind of questions that I was trying to answer for myself in our first meeting. And I think James, like, I shot him some honesty and he shot some honesty right back at me. And I really appreciated that. But that really set the foundation for like our entire working process going forward. So it didn't really matter if I gave him bad advice and steered him in the wrong direction. Um, I think what was important and what, what the takeaway was from that was really just this sense of trust. and you know that's just that's just what made like the mentorship a lot better in my opinion. What do you think?
0: Yeah, and I think uh, the way it looks basically is that, we had the first meeting in person we had another meeting in person um, where like he like we would discuss what our weekly assignments would be like what my weekly assignment would be. So um, so for pitch uh, one thing that we both agreed on was like the basic structure of the pitch would be about 10 minutes That's, that was the requirement um, and it'd start with maybe a personal story, uh, introduction to the characters and then the plot. Of uh, and that's something that we both agreed on, and then maybe a small outro, uh, connecting to the themes and whatnot. So, we met a second time, and uh, he said, "By you know, by this time, I would like you to have at least you know introduction to the characters, you know, mm-hmm. and then um, after that, we met uh, like via like via chat like this with you, Dan, um, and I would basically pitch Henry, you know, like what where I got up to. Oh, did I get up to uh, Act One? Um, and we used act one act two act three as like markers just so that we you know we had you know concrete goals to hit and yeah and uh I felt safe um I felt that that I felt that Henry was rooting for me and then when he gave me notes that hurt my feelings <laughs> not, it, I, I, that they were from a place of not being controlling because that was one of the things that we discussed was that. Yeah, I think we both sense right away we're sensitive artist types and what with that sensitivity is that we're sensitive to people imposing on us. Yes. Because I think that's happened to you in the past. That's mm-hmm. the feeling I've got and that's happened to me in the past even with high school friends and uh, college friends. Yeah. Feeling like, oh, someone's imposing their idea and that's actually the, the you know, episode one of Boomerang. Um, but, but, but anyways. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. yeah uh, the The series. So, um, that was something that we both said. Hey, I don't. I. This is something I've noticed. in, this is this is what has caused past relationships for me to to break up, friendships to break up. Is that I felt that someone was imposing, and um, I've also felt this creatively as well. And so I let Henry know that, and he was very honest. Was like, I totally understand where you're coming from, James, and I respect that. So with that groundwork, when Henry gave me notes. No, like, I, I, I'm i kind of being facetious, but I wasn't... Yeah, sure, maybe it's like, oh, dang. I wasn't hurt, but I was more like, okay, I see where he's coming from. Let me look at that note, and how can I make this better? Or, should I say fuck it? No, fuck him. Like, I don't agree with that note. Mm-hmm. And he told me, right, James, if you ever feel the need to, like, just toss that note, by all means, do so. And that was great. Um, so, basically, uh, some of the notes I received were, like, Yeah, just basically trim it down, make it more streamlined as far as getting through, hitting my time, but also like, what was essential? What are the essential parts to this pitch? What do I need to communicate? And how can we trim the fat to get there? And uh, and I think even just by the questioning that Henry brought to my story, even though he would, sometimes what was great is that he wouldn't even give a prescriptive note. He would give like, he would just ask questions like, oh, why do you have, why do you have that sex scene in there? I had a sex scene in there originally. And he's like, I'm like, uh, like, does that help you with the story? Or so? And I'm like, uh, maybe not. So, anyways, um, yeah, I think gentle nudging is, is kind of like a way I would call uh, Henry's coaching. Yeah, yeah.
1: I, I knew very early on that at the end of the day, it was going to be James who was going to be standing on that stage in front of a whole audience of people and in front of a panel of judges. It wasn't going to be me. I would be sitting very comfortably just like judging everybody else so I knew that I could not give him advice that would gaslight him and I've been in positions where I didn't feel comfortable I didn't feel safe and I know how that can really affect the presentation or even the work it can make you feel like a child you know like it, it can really bring you to a place where you feel like you're kind of helpless and even useless so I definitely didn't want to impose that energy on James like I wanted to make sure that I could support him and make him feel strong and make him you know essentially the best person that you be and that's why like at the very very least uh, when you did your pitch you had good energy like that is without a doubt like you were presenting it like someone who knew their story was extremely passionate and that came across Um, the issue is and where I say like I steered him in the wrong direction (laughs) is uh it became very clear that what the judges were looking for was not like a was not like a screenwriting pitch. Like it wasn't to pitch the story of a movie. They wanted you to pitch the package as if you were talking to financiers who are going to green light your movie. We're gonna write you a big check. So they were really looking for like essentially a log line Uh, And there were like a couple other contestants who did pitch their entire story beat by beat and they just kept saying the same thing. It was like, you know, that's what the script is for. That's what the script is for. And I think like that was that was my bad because this is a humble brag, but I am in a place now where I don't have to write the script first. I can pitch the story. They can either buy it or they don't. And if they buy it, then I write it. Mm. But for this competition, everyone came in knowing that they had a script written. So I guess the pitch competition I guess I guess uh, was really more about how can you effectively pitch your package uh, so that someone can greenlight your project and effectively give you five thousand dollars which is the grand prize winner that
0: was a grand was prize awarded. yeah five thousand um, bucks <coughs> but yo Dan like one note I got uh, from one of the judges was like oh uh, you know when we're when we in a pitch meeting we want we want see that the person that is pitching is likable. I was like, "What? Was like, what? Is this guy saying I'm not likable?" Or and I, I was thinking about it. And you, you—it's funny. You say I had good energy, but I could, I could see, maybe, that and maybe I was being a little bit, I don't know, like too, too intense. I guess. Like, um, yeah. It, if I were to do it again, maybe I'd start with maybe some like humor or something like that. You know, let my personality come out. Uh you know, and but I think I, I came in with like uh like a mission, like I'm gonna I'm gonna make these people see how important this story is. Not just to me, but to, to, to the world, you know, why it needs to be made and stuff. So anyways, I thought uh I
1: don't I don't think you came off as unlikable. <laughs> I mean you were intense, but I don't think it was I don't think it was a bad thing. I don't really? think it was to your uh, detriment. It's it's because of the content. Like the con because the content about was shooting. about a school shooter. Yeah and you come off with that intense energy they're like wait is this guy a school shooter <laughs> like that's that's the only that's the only thing that i would get from that note but
2: yeah 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 yeah
1: i dude i think the judges i think the judges overall were into it okay uh, and you know at the end of it all i i think i saw the winner come up to you and he had some some words of advice for you, and, and yeah, he yeah, ended yeah. up really liking your pitch, right?
0: Yeah, he did, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, and not to humble brag too much, but, like, I, I started liking my story more through, through the work I did on, on, with you and also on the story. I, I came, I was, like, the night before, I had, like, this epiphany of how I wanted to end the story. I was, like, oh, shit, and I was, like, and I, was, like I was getting emotional from my own story and it wasn't it wasn't as if i was writing it was more like my characters were telling me hey james this is how it was going to play out and i was like okay and i was like damn um so we are running kind of over uh right yeah dan so let's we can wrap it up uh, i had a few more questions dan did you have anything real quick
2: no no okay but i think y- you answered most of the questions
0: yeah yeah so um i guess What was I going to do? Yeah. So very quickly, lightning round. Why is Parasite a perfect movie?
1: (laughs) Dude, I think Parasite is a perfect movie because like, I, I have had a lot of friends say that that was one of the most stressful movies they had ever seen. And I don't think you get... I don't think you get a film that is that intense and that stressful without it flipping your expectation 180 degrees so Mm. like I think that the way that they set that movie up in the first half was so brilliant so that when it does when shit does hit the fan yeah it just hits you that much harder it just has that much more impact Uh, I think that's extremely hard to pull off I think it really takes a master storyteller to get even close to what bone was able to capture on screen and I think that's also exemplified in that final sequence. So many filmmakers could fuck that up royally. Uh, it takes someone with a very, very delicate touch to really balance that tone and mm-hmm. everything that he was able to do. So I think just that, just that final sequence is like a masterclass in storytelling, man. Yeah. It really, really is. Um, and dude, it's just—it was a Korean film that is most likely going to be nominated for a bunch of shit. Yeah. And dude it really got it really got america to to go into the theaters to watch a movie completely subtitled
0: Right. Um,
2: that's why it's badass
0: it's pretty badass and the, that anxiety that shit's real dude if you have you seen you haven't seen it yet huh dan i have seen it oh yeah i have that that yeah
1: but it's interesting because like you look at a film like good time which also is very very stressful but it's stressful <coughs> through and through like the entire time it's when you don't have your guard up it's right. when you're laughing at these jokes, and then you flip the switch. Like I think that's when it really gets you, right? I think right, that's right. like, that's extremely, extremely, um, well, well done.
0: Um, okay. Uh, oh yeah. I, just quickly, what did um, I? I shared what I got out of the. Go, circling back to the pitch thing, what did you get out of the like the pitch thing? Uh, have you ever mentored a top before? Uh,
1: I don't think I've ever mentored someone in that capacity uh i realized that i i do like it um and i mean i what i got about out of it was dude our relationship man like that's one key thing that i got out of it but if you're looking for something more concrete uh i think really yeah just just i i you know i remember like in the beginning we had a conscious decision to not for me not to read your script um because i just wanted to hear it fresh Uh, and so like actually getting to hear you pitch it and seeing the details that you weren't willing to let go of or details that I saw as an outsider and believe that should be trimmed, I think that helped my own pitching too, because then I was able to identify places where I could trim, uh, because I also go long, I go very, very long in, in my own pitches. So that was something concrete that I definitely learned from the from the experience. So like sometimes you just need to get out of your own head and uh, and see somebody else do it, and then you'll be like, I could do it better than him. <laughs>
0: okay. Um. Let's see. Last. Uh, one other thing I just want to touch on real quick is um. Uh, what do you look for in a writing partner? You and Jing have been writing together for a while now, and like, what what is is that? Is that just something that happens organically, or like, I think, yeah, just that kind of relationship? Because having a creative relationship with another person, it can be like you know, it can be sensitive, like 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 you said, like yeah. how, where where you butt heads. I've co-directed stuff before, and mm. like yeah, there could be a clash of ideas. So how how does that relationship work, and how how does,
1: yeah, it's very interesting because you want someone that shares sensibility and taste but at the same time you want someone very different so that they can actually compliment you uh and they can fill in your gaps um you know i i read into a lot of these like personality types i'm an infp and Jing is an intj so oh, interesting i think on paper we we you wouldn't expect us to really get along but i think that the times that we are able to speak the same language and be on that same wavelength. Dude, that's when we come up with the dope shit. So like mm. I think you need I think you need someone that is going to challenge you but is also patient enough to understand your weaknesses and is patient enough to be able to turn those weaknesses into strengths. Like I think that that is like what you should get out of a partner. But at the same time it does need it does require commitment from both ends. You know what I mean uh, and then also just you know I, I think like one interesting thing is even if you do work with a writing partner I think it's very important that you don't spend too much time together and you don't you don't just start developing the same friend group like it's very important for you to have your own life so that you can continue to bring fresh ideas and fresh perspectives to the table ah. because if all of a sudden you develop this monolithic point of view then it's almost like, well, what's the point of having a partner? You guys just have that same worldview. Um, but what makes the partnership fruitful is having those two different point of views, so that you can discuss them and you can, you know, debate them uh, till the cosmos come home, you know.
0: And like when you guys first met, was it like instant chemistry or like how? What was that first meeting like?
1: I think well, we we bonded over filmmakers. I mean, we loved Wonkar Y. Uh, we loved like a lot of the like foreign cinema um, you know like we've since and and this still happens like when he turned me on to uh jageunke and like I saw Ashes ash's wife for the first time and that was dope and like we had a good time like chatting about that movie so like i think it was really a bond over films and filmmakers uh, and he also like introduced me to a lot of really dope commercial and music video directors that i never in a million years heard of Hmm. so like yeah he opened me up to a lot of things creatively uh and then I think for me like you know I was able to really lend uh you know experience working in the industry and like how to navigate all that um but yeah, yeah like the initial meeting was was great but at the same time we knew that we were two very very different people like we say this in the beginning of the in the beginning of most of our pitches when we pitch together It's like he's from the East Coast, I'm from the West Coast. He grew up in a town that was, uh, or I grew up in a town that was predominantly Asian. He grew up in a town where he was the only Asian, you know, Mm. so there definitely is, you know, a lot of difference in between us. But yeah, when we come together, it's like, shit is dope.
0: You guys met in a USC class?
1: We met at USC producing a mutual friends thesis film. So it was this girl named Lulu uh, Not Lulu Wang Not Lulu Wang <laughs> Although I did go to USC with Ryan Kugler And had a oh, directing yeah. techniques class with him Damn um, Yeah, this girl named Lulu She asked me if I would produce her thesis I said yes, and she told me there was going to be another producer Who was currently in Shanghai But he would come back to LA To shoot this, or to produce this thesis um, So I was like, awesome And uh and then I remember the first time I ever met Jing was over Skype, so oh. that was really interesting, because uh, yeah, he was he was doing amazing things in China at the time. And then the other guy that was also involved in that project was J.C. Chang. He was he was like our third producer slash associate producer.
0: Okay, nice. Um, all right, let's. Uh, last question. Um, what was like a very seminal film for you that like that you saw either growing up or in film school or whatever that really kind of like it was like oh shit I want to do film you know
1: for me honestly it's The Matrix wow yeah I think what that film was able to accomplish I was like yeah that's that's 100% the movie that made me want to make movies uh but that's a very separate question from you know what's a movie that you would have made Uh, because to answer that question or like what's what's a movie that's like very close to like your sensibility Uh, because then I would lean more towards something like Eternal Sunshine of the Spots Mind or Ex Mahina or Her because I I really Um, love that like grounded science fiction space
0: gotcha but I guess it's still kind of in that realm of you know what? What can be? I guess kind of sci-fi. I guess we're like, yeah. For me, her fucking. I saw that shit twice, at least twice. Yeah, I saw it twice in the theaters. That's the floor. That that film floored me, man. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You know, after I watched that movie, I wrote a letter to my ex-girlfriend. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and you mailed it, or you kept it? Your, your I mailed result? it because she was living in Taiwan. At amazing, the time. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. 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 Anyways, okay. Um, let's go to language corner. This is our last section with Dan and I. Um, uh, basically, we have we ask like if you know any phrase in Shanghainese, Chinese or any phrase in in a particular language that uh, that you know that other than English, or even if it's like a cool phrase in English, maybe um, that you know. We share at the end of the podcast, kind of mm. like a cultural exchange. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Dan, did you have anything? Or
2: yeah, yeah. The um the word I'm going to use is kando, kando suru, is to be moved, so you can actually watch movie. I only, I learned about this movie, or this word, because I was showing um, Beauty and the Beast to a, a bunch of Japanese people, and some girls were starting crying, and I was like, did you like it? And she goes, oh, sugoku kando shita, is meaning I was like really moved.
0: <laughs> wow. Kando suru, so it's a verb, yeah. yeah.
2: Kando is like the feeling, and then sudu is like to to do or right. to be.
0: Ah, uh, Kando Sulu Okay. Um, Let's see. One, I. Uh, Okay, si mu Jiao I think I get the tones right. Well, si mu Be to. Yeah, so si mu si 目是眼睛, like is like your eyes Zhao uh, is like to exchange to means to throw so it's kind of like when two people lock eyes and um, yeah it's kind of that uh, feeling uh, yeah the, like maybe you see a, like a really you connect with a uh, you know a romantic partner and then you guys look you guys you guys both walk eyes and this you know two eyes a pair of eyes pair of eyes there and you guys lock. right yeah so I saw that in a TED talk recently I've been trying to listen to like Chinese TED talks and I'm, I'm like you know I'm catching some stuff but I'm like damn that's a dope ass word but anyways um, any you, you speak Shanghainese yeah
1: I speak Shanghainese but I think the one I want to contribute is a, a Korean word or, or phrase that I learned recently it's a uh, jikopyeong, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering it completely, but I think it closely translates to the decay or like the disease of your profession. <laughs> so like, no matter what you do, if you do it long enough, you will essentially gather negative attributes from that job. So like, for example, my girlfriend, she's a, a teacher in Korea, and she's being, Korean. Right? She's yeah. Korean she being a teacher has like changed her personality where she's very patient with others but sometimes too patient and sometimes she has to talk to her students in a certain way to kind of get their attention well she does that with her own friends and her own family um so that would be like her like the disease of her profession oh and for me i think like with writing it's almost like i'm in some characters heads so often sometimes that it spills into my own social life and sometimes I overanalyze other people I, um, I give them <laughs> I might give them like uh, some faulty advice because I'm like so stuck in the mode of like what one of my characters would do um, and then other times like I, I'm like so focused in on certain words that when I'm having a conversation with someone I'm like dissecting every single word that they're using so, like, that would be my disease of my profession, my jigo Oh,
0: wow. That's that's a great oh. phrase, man. I, yeah. I, <laughs> it just made me think about, like, uh, uh, so, some of the notes you gave were, like, very word-specific, I noticed, in, in my pitch, which is fine. That's great. Yeah. I, I noticed that why, I, w- one thing I got from you from was, like, damn, Henry is, like, a wordsmith.
1: Oh, I'm definitely not. Um, He's
0: he's like he's like a word doctor, you know. Like yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. If you have a conversation with Jing, like you'll realize that like I'm not even close to his level. Um, I mean, he's just like he's just so well read, and I just I'm no I'm nowhere close to that. But I'm slowly beginning to see the power of words, and I think when you're able to actually wield it as a tool, that's when that's when like a new door to writing definitely opens up. So like. I'm slowly getting it with the writing i haven't really adopted it for speech uh but i think when you really are able to like properly wield those tools uh you'll be able to you'll be able to really manipulate some folks so like that's really what i was trying to get you to think about was like Mm. in in certain sentences like think about what kind of emotion you're trying to evoke out of the audience and what words can you use to really get that out of them
0: yeah yeah, yeah. and I think uh, I don't think yeah don't sell yourself short man I think you are you you're you you have your strengths man you have your strengths yeah the one thing I notice if I if I can just offer is that you're you're fairly self-deprecating sometimes you know and uh, but I think it, sometimes like dude you, yeah you have some really strong strengths and I think that sensitivity that you have is, is actually is not a weakness at all it's it's, it's a very strong very uh, perceptive quality that you have, and I think, uh, yeah, all the best to you. Thank you for sharing, and uh, love you, man.
1: <laughs> no, I love you too, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you yeah. guys so much. This yeah. was fun,
0: thank, thank you. you. All right, thanks so much. All right, this is Yin Young. Thank you so much. Be sure to subscribe <laughs> on uh, iTunes, uh, you where we are on YouTube, Spotify, all the good platforms, and uh, yeah, see ya. Bye bye.
1: bye.